Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I wanted to continue on talking about a little bit about vertical video. Sort of a strange thing, not really used to it in this day and age. But one thing I've noticed is that YouTube, YouTube itself, is now going to support, and I think maybe for the last six months, has supported vertical video playing or playback, at least on mobile phones. I think iOS and Android within the app. And, uh, and when I go to the website still, it shows me the player in horizontal regular video mode and then it shows me the video kind of I guess pillar boxed in there as a as a piece of vertical video in a horizontal frame that's what it shows me on the web and so I'm interested to see if they'll end up changing that over time or you know maybe reorient uh, at least a little bit so that it just sort of shows it without the black bars around it but uh, kind of interesting I'm not sure if I'm totally sold on a format of vertical video outside of the the mobile handheld uh, you know, phone experience. And so that's probably why they're, they're focusing so much just on that, uh, that first, but definitely interesting kind of seeing the way that, uh, that Instagram TV is sort of competing in the vertical video market, you know, the produced vertical video market, different than Snapchat, different than the story stuff that you see on Instagram or Facebook. So you can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. This last week, I made a trip out to Central Oregon, and it was still really nice. You know, we had a little bit of rain, I think, out there last Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, we it just it just brightened up a ton. It was super crisp out, super bright, really cold though. Uh, I think my friend Dave had just gone out uh, to Eastern Oregon, I think out towards Smith Rock and he said it was super cold out there too. But yeah, this trip, uh, we did like an overnight trip out there. And I think today I just posted a photograph of, uh, of something I thought was really cool. It's one of the archeological remains that are out in Eastern Oregon. And, and there's a whole interesting history about stuff in Eastern Oregon. Um, but the photo that I posted to Instagram and to, you know, to Facebook and all the other places today is, is a photograph of this rock teepee ring that's still in very good condition. It's out in Eastern Oregon in this area, uh, in between, uh, sort of near like where a dry lake bed or once just a lake would have been now what we see in our modern time is just a dry lake bed. But the cool thing is, is as we kind of look around, you can see the remnants of an old Indian camp. That was really quite established in that area. I think it's it's just amazing to get to go see. And you'll find other artifacts uh, from Indian populations out in Eastern Oregon once you start looking around. Like you'll start noticing um, obsidian chips that are on the ground. Or you'll start noticing um, really in like some places, you, through a lot of Oregon, through a lot of the, the less developed, uh, less forested areas of Eastern Oregon, there's a, there's a lot less erosion that's taken place, natural erosion that's taken place over the last few hundred years. Like over here on the west side of the coast with all the, the deciduous plant um, matter that comes up, there's a lot of turnover that seems to happen. Like um, a lot of the vegetation is going to end up hiding or overgrowing some of the older um, encampments or establishments that were made. I mean, right now I'm in the Camas Valley, I'm in the Willamette Valley where the uh, Kalapuya Indians, where I'm sure out here in front of me in this big field out toward the Willamette River, there's tons of Indian artifacts, tons of old Indian camps, but none of that's really visible because of all the deciduous organic material that's been developed over here. 
over the many hundreds of years since it's been that there was an Indian population in the area. Now, what's interesting about Eastern Oregon is that because it's way more remote, there's very few people out there. There's very few people to disturb a lot of things. And really, sagebrush doesn't grow very fast. Uh, Things don't really move around very fast out there. I was there, I think, maybe more than a decade ago, and it was really almost the same as it is now. Very little has changed out there. You know, no new houses, no new development, maybe maybe a fence around the thing. That might be it. Um, But it was really cool. So you get out to this area, you hike out to a spot, and you can really see all over the ground. It's just a ton of black obsidian chunks, these unworked pieces of black obsidian that were carried in by people and then dropped there at some point. And all these pieces were used, I think, in the – in the camp to, to chip out arrowheads and to chip out other tools that they would use. But it's really cool. This teepee ring is really the, the only, um, well, there's a few teepee rings, like uh, a few smattering of like of, of piles of rocks. This teepee ring was really the one that was, uh, that was the most established still. It was most upright still. And you wonder like how far back do these go? Like how far back do these, uh, these stones that were laid into the ground go? But they would use it sort of like as a foundation for, for the tent or the hut of the teepee that they, they would have established there. And then they would, you know, work out of it. And they worked out of it on a bluff. And then they would look out over the, the hill to the lake area. And yeah, I don't know. They just had a whole system out there. But it's really amazing when you really start to uh, to come in and, and sort of understand the layout of the land and, and where people would sort of go. And it's very interesting, man. Surreal, really, to get out and like be in a spot like that, or sit in a spot, sit in the center of the teepee ring where you know there's people, other men, thousands of years ago, that were doing work and trying to survive out in really what is now a very harsh environment, and back then was. St- Still probably quite harsh, uh, at least in the hundreds of years ago. But man, if you start going back thousands of years, even a few hundred years ago, I guess 500 years ago, a lot of those dry lake areas out in eastern Oregon really still had at least a marsh or at least a wetland or uh, or something like that. I mean, like similar to Summer Lake now, you know, parts of the year it's dry, parts of the year it's, it's filled with water. Um, so it, it might be quite a bit more like that now, but I think in the past it was really... Uh, it was, it was just accepted that there was going to be some amount of water in in the lake bed all year round instead of it being you know a dry lake bed. And I think it's, I think it's supported by the watershed of a few creeks that are in the area, and and out in that area of eastern Oregon, there's really I don't think there's really that many that many drainages that really go all the way out toward the coast. Um, so I think there's a few parts that are like landlocked watersheds where the water flows into an area and then, and then kind of pools up and makes a large lake there. And, um, well, I know like there's the Klamath Lake and then that runs out to the Klamath river. So that, that ends up getting out to the, to the ocean. But I don't know if like places like Goose Lake or, uh, or just like these inland lake areas, I think they're just fed by the body of water. And I don't really know if a lot of that would actually get back out into the water cycle to, to head back out toward the ocean and then, you know, come back up or something. So it's kind of interesting thinking about, uh, just some of the, the old watershed stuff that used to be out there, how populations used to try and try and work around all that. You know, like you go out to a place like Fort Rocky and you read some of the signs and you look at uh, how back in the Pleistocene area, they, that whole region out there was part of, a, I think, what's called a Pluvian Lake. Uh, it's like a prehistoric Pleistocene era lake um, that really took up a huge amount of land out in central Oregon. Really what we think of now is just a large desert area covered with sagebrush with really very few land features was actually just all underwater the the land feature of fort rock that we've visualized now 
I think came about uh, geologically during the Pleistocene era, era before before the uh, before the Ice Age and and probably a, a while back before that. But during that time, it was underwater. It was under a lake bed, and so that's where you get that formation. Is it was underwater, and then it kind of eroded around it. This aquifer and lava or aquifer and magma. I don't know. It met at a certain time. It made this big ring, this big, uh, this big Fort Rock style formation. And that's still what's out there now. But it's really amazing when you get out there and you go see it. And then you kind of start to reckon with the perspective that this all was once underwater. This was like an inland sea. And then after the Ice Age or before the Ice Age, there's some evidence of kind of, well, I don't know. Who knows? But uh, there's evidence to show that uh, the Clovis people, the Clovis tribes, which I think were, were the ones that at least in modern archaeology have been identified as the group that was first to come over the land bridge, first to come into the northwest and populate uh, parts of the west coast and into the south and onward and such. But I guess these Clovis people had a, had like a specific type of, of way of, of building their tools their stone tools that they would use. And that's a, a bit of a way that you can track some things is if you do find an archaeological artifact you can kind of identify by the technique used to build the stone tool like there's uh, there's different measures i think one of the oldest ones that's looked for is fluting um and that was a, a technique used by the clovis people where they they would sort of make an an arrowhead or a spear point really spear points i don't know if they had they had flying bows and arrows at that time that far back but they they build these spear points and they would flute the end the bottom of it so like if you were to imagine um it would be kind of this concaved uh, slope that was that was sort of dremeled out of the bottom base of the rock, so that you could you could kind of fit that down in the center of a of a stick, really, and then and then wind that up. So you kind of make both ends uh, kind of taper off to a point, and then you would jam one end into the stick, and then wrap it, and then I don't know, you know, put sap on it or or, or you know whatever you could do to to, to fasten it down. Um, but I guess that was one of the techniques that was used early on, and that's one of the the things that they look for when they're trying to find really old populations in Oregon. Sometimes it's fluting. That doesn't always mean that it's really old, though, I suppose. But I guess there's like handfuls of uh, of different technical or technological generations of, of stone tool building out there. And you can kind of tell a little bit. But it's very fascinating stuff. And man, was it not amazing to get out there and to really recognize that, you know, I was around uh, a natural human man-made, well, a semi-natural but man-made artifact of... Uh, of a home or of an establishment that's as old—I don't know how old it is. Maybe it's as old as early Rome, late Rome. Who would know how old it is in comparison to Europe? I'm not really sure. Maybe it goes back even further than that. It seems like there was population uh, in that area of Oregon for thousands of years. I think was it the Paiute that was out there? Could be different, but I know the Paiute. The Paiute were south of that area. The Paiute were in Lake County, I think, like through Hart Mountain, Alvord, Nevada, the Malheur area. All of that was Paiute. So maybe this was still in the Paiute section. But I know that that really, you know, like what we've noticed in the last few hundred years, if you were to uh, to look at the changes of a map, even within the United States over the last, say, take 600 years, not even 7,000 years. Take the last 600 years of the United States of America and then look at all the different maps that would be the territorial ranges of those people who ended up being in power during that time. It's really interesting to see and to kind of take note to how something that seems permanent 
or it seems to have the nature of permanence in it when you speak about it like the that was the range of the Paiute Indian. Well, was it for 600 years or for that long? Did it move around? Did they have, I don't know, territorial engagements? Was there really that many of them? Were they there all the time? I don't know any of that information. So it's kind of interesting when you sort of think about it, but it could have been any number of large groups of people that probably would have no idea they were called the Paiute Indian. Um, but all really very interesting stuff. And man, was it so cool to get out there and uh, and see uh, see a real uh, a teepee ring? It's really fun. It's one of the the cooler pieces of uh, archaeological artifacts that I've run into. I mean, you know, you see uh, petroglyphs, you see a lot of things, but really, you know, you were sitting in the home of someone that lived thousands of years ago, that lived out in the same place that that I do now. You know, really fascinating stuff. But I had a blast going out there and uh, and getting to check it out. Uh, and it was really. I don't know. I just I love, I kind of love this stuff with the with the story with the background to it, where you kind of get to attach some thing that you recognize with it with uh, with what you get to talk about or what you get to show with it. Uh, so I thought it was a really cool story. It was it was really fun to get out there and go see it. I remembered it from years ago. I think I'd seen it about ten or eleven, twelve years ago, and uh, I think I tried to go back to it, but I didn't really see how to or where it was, and I wasn't really sure. It's not something on the map. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it if you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. Data management stuff that maybe we can talk about some other time. Of like how to use hard drives, how many you need, how many backups you need, how to like re-archive stuff and probably just talk about it. Like the trouble, like, cause we're not experts, but just the trouble that we have of trying to sort out the hard drives that we have. And like where the data is, do we have duplicates of it? Like, I think you were talking about that today of the duplicates that you have in yeah. files in the archive. Yeah, I've been putting together. I'm also trying to get in shape for 2018 and all my photo work for that year. So uh, I've been putting together an archive of all my stuff. And yeah, I'm at that point where I really just have to weed out all the duplicates that I have of so many things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely there too, where there's so many different little parts of files that have been made from the original raw file that was taken, like the, the original photograph. There's so many derivatives of that that have come out of it over the, over time, especially if it was a photo that I liked, that I ranked highly, you know, and that I'd already exported. There's already copies of that. Is it JPEG or some other like smaller web-sized thumbnail right. of it? Yeah, I have a lot of different sizes. Yeah, and that's one that I'm trying to get through right now. I'm, I'm going to try and go through this catalog. And I'm going to try and sort it out so that I pull like the, the top few thousand photos of the last decade that are the raw files that I really want to be able to work on or get access to or make new versions of or prints of or something, whatever that might be. But just to have access to kind of quickly or, you know, like, oh, yeah, these are all the memories that I'm really after. I want those best versions of the files available to me. But a lot of the time I'm noticing that like it's really difficult to get to that given like the current archive structure that I have where it's just all hundred thousand photos that I have. Yeah. I can't really get to stuff in the way that I need to. So I'm going to try and like figure that out where it's all the best stuff that I want to have with me right now. Everything gets archived 
to the cloud or to some some cold storage thing or you know to some old hard drive that gets shut off or something but some some place where we get like everything stored there and then really just like the last like year or 18 months or so and like the next six months or so is what i want to be able to like keep on the hard drive that i'm working on but we should talk about more like hard drive data stuff as the year comes in a little bit closer yeah i I know we're planning on or we're kind of in the process of changing around how our hard drives are set up for uh, all the photo stuff yeah we're trying to get i think a little bit bigger stuff because like right now i have the four terabyte hard drive here that's the one that plugs in and that one's been great for like doing some storage stuff but now like you know like the data rates uh they it just the cost comes down so much that you're able to get a really large size large capacity hard drive for not much money and i think the uh like the the cost of that is a lot better than some of the cloud storage stuff and just some of the efforts of uh, trying to put something in the cloud and then trying to pay to keep it there year after year after year I'm really looking for a lot of these things that aren't really super important or super high priority to be able to put in some kind of cold storage thing like this, like what we're talking about, where we have a backup of it on a hard drive that's kind of put aside that we don't have to worry about too much. But kind of like what we noticed, and I think like what uh, one of those burned out cables that's in the trash right now is uh, a a signal of is that hard drives go bad sometimes. Like that hard drive that we had, that portable one where it burned out at the USB port. Right. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So that, there's nothing on it. Yeah. So that, well, yeah. And nothing that we needed. Yeah. At least nothing. It's not backed up. There was, yeah. That's the yeah. thing. Nothing that there was a back. So if, it would be terrible if, you know, one of these hard drives went where it was the, like the sole, the sole house of all of the data that we have, especially like all of like the decade of photographs that we made and stuff. So I'm really trying to be con- conscious of trying to keep those in multiple places at the same time. So we've done an effort to put those up on the, uh, on like a cloud storage service, which has been okay. I, but I think it's like, oh, it's not the best version of those files. If I understand right, it's like a JPEG version. There's a few limitations around it, if I understood right. But it's um, it's okay. I don't know. We'll try and put a bunch of stuff up on the Prime photo service like that. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask which uh, which services you're using right now. Yeah, pro- the Amazon Prime cloud services is what I'm trying to use for the photo storage. And uh, they have like unlimited photo photo uploads for a lot of stuff. And we, we put up a lot of stuff. Uh, on that but you, you kind of keep have you have to make it current so there's all this stuff from 2016 and 2017 that wasn't really part of that and so i need to upload all of that content up into the cloud oh sure yeah you just have to keep keep adding to it yeah yeah i have to keep kind of i have to keep some of that stuff synced and i think even still there's there's a lot of gaps within like 2015 and 14 and that's all just stuff that we can file ourselves but um but stuff that, that didn't make it up originally um, and so now that I have like this, uh, this like new catalog, like, so what I, what, so before I get out of myself, what I did this weekend is, uh, yeah, I took the hard drives. I had this one terabyte hard drive that I use as like my portable drive. That's like my storage and stuff like the tank that I have with my laptop when I'm in my bag out on the road. And that has all my photos on it. And it's really just had a copy of like the whole photo archive for a long time. But what I've been wanting to do is update that for 2017, take every photograph I have, every JPEG, DNG file, any any raw file or photo file that I have on my computer, on any of my hard drives. And I want to try and condense that down into one set of files that are organized in some way. And so I wanted to, to use Lightroom to do that since Lightroom in its back end when it, when it brings in files. It'll bring in files from one hard drive and then write them into a new file architecture on another hard drive. And so I tried to take um, I tried to take everything and I backed it up into the four terabyte hard drive, and then I brought everything back over 
and I filtered it through Lightroom so that I could get everything put into a new file architecture that matched by um, by like month and date and year of uh, of the file date. And most most of the metadata is correct, but like you know, Marina, like a lot of the metadata for for whatever weird camera or whatever set of film that we had that was scanned by some computer that never had its clock set and still says 2002. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of stuff that has the wrong metadata date where it shows up like when my D3's battery died and it said it was 2007 in February again because that was the first date that that computer knew in that camera and it just reverted to that date again. That's the worst. It was silly. Yeah. So it's mis it's misdated, but it's really fine for, for most cases. So I was able to bring all those photos back over. I put a new collection together. It was about 500 gigabytes or so. And then I was able to transfer that back over to the, to the larger drive. And then the plan is to wipe the go drive, the one that I have with me all the time. And, uh, and then bring back over, like I was talking about at the beginning, like the top few thousand photos and then everything that I'm kind of currently working on for this year and last year. Or so there goes a heaters. <laughs> banging in the background bang 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 sounds like hammers on a pipe it really does every time that is exactly what it sounds like i never get used to it like when it comes into into fall and those start popping <laughs> it's pretty funny all through the winter all through spring still like it's like in the 70s late may Ugh. <laughs> but uh but yeah so we're trying to do like this collection of archiving all these photos and trying to organize it and put it together and it's been a fine process so far, but like trying to get your hard drive straightened out, especially when you're a little short on space, because you sort of wait until you start to organize your hard drive until until you're running low on space. And you're like, oh, man, I got to do something. I got to move these files around so I can kind of get by still. And that's what I, I was running into problems with, too, where it was like every hard drive was starting to get full. And I go, oh, man, I got to get like a new hard drive. And like we were just talking about, hard drives go bad, especially the portable ones, especially these spinning disk drives like the MacBook I have now, that's an SSD. Those solid state systems are going to last a lot longer than the spinning disk mechanisms because that magnetic spinning disk plate is going to mechanically fail after some number of miles of revolutions that it makes, that the motor does. But the solid state system has the advantage because there's no moving parts and it's just electricity. And so it's really conceivable that there's really no finite point that that drive will fail like most thumb drives or something optical media it's kind of like thought that that's going to burn out after 20 or 30 years you're not really even going to be able to use the disc as it's stored unless it's stored in like a good condition but thumb drives and other like solid state media if if the rom doesn't lose whatever data was on it it's likely that you know it'd still be readable if it wasn't damaged so it's kind of interesting like how Different yeah, types of media. What's lasting work. and what's not. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. Yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanAphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.